Hey, I am Carly Boudreaux, and I've been coming to Redemption for about six months, and I've been a Christian for around six years. Um, I have experienced a lot in my life, from drug addiction to alcoholism to abuse. From a young age, my parents were divorced, and when they got divorced, um, alcohol was kind of something that was a part of their culture, which very quickly became part of the culture that I was a part of. At that time, I was single. Um, the father of my child had left me, and uh, it was really hard, and it was really, um, it was really lonely. And so, a few years later, I ended up going down a really bad um, path of abusing drugs and alcohol, and. I remember falling to my knees at one point. I had never really prayed before and I had never really had a, that kind of experience with God. And I just fell to my knees and I said, God, I don't know what I'm doing, but I need you. After that, I started following Christ. I started getting involved in my church. I started um, living my life in a way that I wasn't looking for things in people, but I started looking to Christ for um, who I was and all of that. My husband then started to abuse me <clears throat> and thank, thankfully uh, had people in my life, people here at Redemption, people who truly loved me that stood alongside of me even through my divorce and pointed me, kept me pointed towards Jesus. And honestly, I don't know what would have happened or what I would have went back to if I wouldn't have had those people with me in that time because it was, it was just such a, it was such a struggle to go through what I had been through, come out of it, and then feel like I was right back where I had started. Single, a mom of three, divorced, and all alone. But what I didn't allow myself to do was to believe that truth that I was all alone. I was, I had people to love me, I had people to care for me, and I had Jesus guiding me every step of the way. And of course I stumbled and I fell, but I got back up and I didn't allow myself to be overcome by everything that was happening to me. Well, today, I want to talk to you about those people. Do you know those people? Those people that aggravate you, agitate you, and somehow manage to get on your nerves and under your skin at the same time. You know those people. They know all of your buttons, and they love to push your buttons, right? You know those people. That's what we're going to talk about today. Who are those people in your life? Okay, I'll tell you mine. Mine are people who don't put their shopping carts up at the grocery store. You mean to tell me you can walk two miles for an hour at Kroger, but as soon as you get to your car, you're like, not another step. No, I will not do it. Really? Just return the shopping cart. It's not that hard, right? Those are the people for me. What, what, are, what are people for you? Who are those people? What about those people who drive 55 miles an hour in the fast lane. Those people, don't you know that the speed limit is a suggestion? 
go fast, right? I was talking to JC. She oversees our children's ministry here. I said, who are those people? She said, if I have to pass you on the right lane, that just gets my road rage going. And you look at JC, you're like, she's so tiny, but it's the little ones you have to worry about. She's got road rage because to her, those are those people. What about the guy at the gym who doesn't rack his weights? right? Or wipe the bench. You're like, this is nasty. I'm all up in your junk, right? I mean, like I'm praying for hemorrhoids in your ear. That's what I'm praying for that guy. Cause there's those people, you know, those people, what about people who say Walmarts, Walmarts, right? You ever hear this? Walmart, not Walmarts anyways, or irregardless, right? Those people, you know, all the English majors are like, those people drive me crazy. You know, those People, I was, what, what about this one? What about, um, for the ladies, what about whenever your husband doesn't put the toilet seat down? Okay, those people, right? You're married to those people, aren't you? Right, that's why you brought them into the church. Say, pastor, teach them something good. Please help me, God. Or how about this one? For the fellas, what about when your wife comes home from work, she takes off her bra and hangs it on the doorknob? Right, actually, that was pretty cool. Y'all, good job on you for that one. I, I'm okay with that one. I'm okay with that one. All right, but you know those, those people, right? We all have those people in our lives. But you know what? If you don't have those people, it's because you're those people. The Apostle Paul even had those people. In fact, as long as there has been a church, there has always been those people in the church as well. And so today we are going to talk about those people. How many of you show of hands? You have one of those people in your life. Hands up, hands up. All right. How many of you, that person sitting next to you right now? Oh, all the hands. Oh, don't put that hand down. All right. All right. Well, today I'm glad you brought that person to church because here's my sermon title today. It's called four types of Christians to avoid. Paul's going to give us four types of Christians, those people in the church that we need to look out for, we need to watch out for, if we want to continue to mature and to grow in our faith. And here's the reason why this is so important. If you're taking notes, write this down. We're a note-taking church. You got a note sheet when you walked in. And here's the first line on there, is that we become like the people that we do life with. This is why you need to be very careful about who you surround yourself with. The author of Proverbs says it like this. He says, the one who walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools, what does he do? He suffers harm. There's another saying that says, show me your friends and I will show you your future. Why? Because we become like the people that we do life with. Parents, you understand this when it comes to your kids, do you not? This is the reason why, as parents, we need to be mindful about what our children are consuming on the internet, what they're learning at school, through YouTube, and other different friends and peers that they may have, because eventually, our kids are products of their instruction, and they become like the people that they do life with. Or maybe you experienced this whenever you were going into high school. You know, that gap from, you know, eighth grade summer to ninth grade year, and you go to high school, you don't know who you are, you don't know what your identity is, and so you're looking for a place to belong, and you're looking for people to do life with, and you're wondering, who am I going to be? Am I gonna be a jock? Am I gonna be a prep? Am I gonna be a freak or a geek? Am I gonna be a band nerd? Or am I gonna be that weird kid next to the Coke machine who's asking people for 25 cents over lunch, 
You're like, that's oddly specific, Byron. I know, because that was me. I was the weird kid in school. That was who I was. You wouldn't believe it now because I'm so cool. Uh, no, I was the weird kid at school, but you, you don't know. But what eventually happens is you get plugged into a clique or with another group or a, a, a gathering of friends and what happens? You eventually become like the people that you do life with. It's the same thing when it comes to growing in our faith is that we become like the people that we do life with. And here's why this matters to us today. It's because Redemption Church, we're a new church. We're a young church. We're about to celebrate our sixth birthday. We're going to first grade, come on. And as a young church, well, a lot of new people are joining. We started our church six years ago in an apartment in Old Town with just a handful of people. And we moved and opened in a bar and we continued growing. We moved here and we just bought this entire city block because more people keep showing up, meeting Jesus, get saved. And so we're gonna have to buy a bigger building and expand and we're gonna keep growing and moving forward. But as we continue to grow, it's people like you who are experiencing what we call life change through Jesus. That's why there's 300 baptism locks on the wall when you walked in the door. Those are people who have met Jesus here in our church. It's a new church. It's a growing church. We're a, a young church. God's doing some amazing things in our church. And a lot of new believers are looking to see eventually what they're going to become as they pursue Jesus here within our church. And so what we have to figure out is not only what type of person are we gonna be, but we need to figure out what type of church are we going to be? Because you become like the people that you do life with. And this is so relevant to the text that we're gonna study today because just like in every church, there's those people Paul had those people too. So we're in week six of our study through Colossians. If you're new, let me go ahead and catch you up. Paul is a missionary traveling church planter. He wasn't always a Christian. In fact, when we first meet Paul in Acts chapter six, he was a murderer of the church. He was what is known as a religious leader or a Pharisee. And at the death of the first Christian, his name was Stephen, Paul held the coat while they stoned Stephen, not Rocky Mountain High stone, but throw a rock and kill you stones. They stoned Stephen and Paul was holding the coats and he looked on with hearty, dis hearty agreement about what was happening. Eventually, Jesus comes and blinds Paul, knocks him off the horse, and then he leads him to a man named Ananias' house. Ananias prays, he's healed, Paul's converted, gives his life to Jesus, becomes a pastor, and then he spends his entire ministry not reaching to the Jewish people, but actually ministering to Gentiles. That's people like you and me who are not Jewish, we're, we're far from God, and so Paul, he takes the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And as he's planting these churches, he does so in Acts chapter 19, we find a story of the church of Ephesus. And that church at Ephesus, it begins to grow and they begin to send out leaders. And one of the leaders is named Epaphras. Epaphras, he plants a church in a town called Colossae. And as the church is growing, it's a young church, just like us. People are meeting Jesus. People are maturing in their faith. But just like any church, eventually there comes chaos there becomes confusion, there is gonna be a little crisis. And Epaphras is experiencing crisis. What's the crisis? Is that there are different groups or types of people in their church 
that are trying to tell people what to do, how to live, and what it really means if they want to be a Christian and how to follow Jesus. And so we have all these different ideas, and Epaphras is trying to bring unity to the church. So he writes a letter to Paul while he's in prison. Paul writes the letter of Colossians back to Epaphras, knowing there's a lot of new believers, knowing there's a lot of new Christians. And so he writes this letter teaching them what type of church to be, but also what type of person God has created them to be. And in this section we're looking at today, Paul gives a warning about what types of Christians to watch out for. Why? Because you eventually become like the people that you do life with. And so Paul today is going to introduce us to four types of Christians that we should avoid. And the first is a man named Legalistic Larry. Have you ever met Legalistic Larry? You ever met Legalistic Larry, the guy with the long clipboard and Excel spreadsheet and a long finger who loves to point it and point out everything that you've ever done wrong? He's got rules and rules about the rules, and there's rules about the rules about the rules. That's Legalistic Larry. Some of you, you grew up in a church like this. Let's go ahead and see what Legalistic Larry has. Verse 16, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to the festivals or new moons or Sabbath, for these are the shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Legalistic Larry is a religious rule-keeping person. He is proud, he is arrogant, and what does he say that he does? He passes judgment on other people. This is what legalism is. How many of you grew up in a church that was legalistic? How many of you grew up in a home that was legalistic? How many of you glad that you found Redemption Church? You're like, praise the Lord, thank you, right? Okay, here's, here's the danger of, of legalism, is that legalism takes what God originally meant for good, and then it turns it into a system that eventually does more harm than helps, and it takes a good thing, and it turns it into a bad thing because legalism, it it ruins everything. What legalism does is it tries to add to a person to be able to receive God's grace through the works that they do. Here's how it works for new believers is that you'll see a legalistic person on the outside, they look very holy, they look very religious, very pious, very serious, and they're very devoted. And you look up to them and you say, man, that must be what it looks like to follow Jesus. That must be what it really looks like to become a mature Christian in your faith. And so you want to be like them. But the problem with legalism is this is that they create a system to where if you walk their path, you end up looking more like them than you actually look like Jesus. Because they say, if you want to go to this church, you got to act like us. If you want to be in my Sunday school class, you have to do these things. If you want to be accepted by us and welcomed by us, then you have to follow our traditions, our denomination, our rituals. You have to do things the way that we do things. And if you don't, then you're not welcome to be in relationship or to be in fellowship with us. That's what legalism does. And it goes beyond the Bible with their beliefs. 
They take the truth to scripture and they think, you know what, God? These are some really good things, but there's a few things that you missed. Luckily for you, I'm here and we can go ahead and we can take this one step further and we can help you out with all of the teachings of the Bible. God, you missed a book, so I'm here to write a new book. It's called Second Opinions or third colonoscopy. I got a little extra wood for you, right? And so they go beyond the Bible with their beliefs. And here's what they struggled with in Paul's day. Paul's day, you'll find different things that he wrestles with these people. The first thing that he talks about is questions in regards to food and drink. So they're passing judgment on people based upon what they eat or what they drink or what they don't drink. And then he mentions new moons, festivals, and Sabbath days. So the controversy here comes around Sabbaths and food and drink. Now, in the Old Testament, there are dietary laws, restrictions that God gave to his people. He said, there's certain foods you can and others you cannot eat. Such examples would be like shellfish or pork. He tells the people of the, the Hebrew faith, do not eat these things. Because at that time, they had no way to refrigerate. They had no proper way for them to cook or even to prepare or to serve to others. And so there was dietary restrictions for protection of God's people. And then beyond that, there was food that was sacrificed to idols. And a part of those commandments were to keep God's people separate from the rest of the world. And that was the way that the Jewish people were to live. Now, listen, is it a good thing or a bad thing to not eat raw pork? It's a good thing, right? Don't eat that. And don't eat old pork either. It's going to make you sick, right? And don't eat rotten shrimp. It's going to make you sick. So God's trying to protect his people by, by doing that. But here's what religion does. It comes along and it takes a good thing and then it begins to oppose it on other people like the Gentiles who were not given those commandments. And it says, if you want to be a Christian, you have to follow our rules. Another one would be in regards to the Sabbath. Now, is the Sabbath a good thing or a bad thing? It's one of the 10 commandments. It's a good thing. God invented the Sabbath. He made it up. He worked for six days and on the seventh day, he rested. God made the Sabbath. So therefore it is good. In our day, I don't have to teach about, tell people, hey, you're taking too many Sabbaths. No, I have to try to encourage people to take Sabbaths in our day because we live in a hustle and grind culture and people don't know how to slow down and chill out. And God's like, hey, take a Sabbath. I love you. Go eat some good food. Hang out with your friends and family. Go to church and take a nap. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Those are good things. But then what legalism does is they come along and they have certain rules and regulations and ways in which you are supposed to take a Sabbath. And if you don't Sabbath just like them, well, then all of a sudden you're in sin. And what they do is they take something that God created for good, they manipulate it, they twist it, and they use it for evil in other people's lives. Here's how they would say it. If you don't eat what we eat, you're not really saved. If you don't drink what we drink, then you're not really saved. If you don't celebrate our festivals, you're not really a Christian. And if you're really a Christian, then you would Sabbath. And what does Paul say about that? He says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Why? How is a person saved? Is, are we saved by what we do? Are we saved by our works? No, no. How is a person saved? We are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. That's how we are saved. And so let me go ahead and just give you a little equation right now. It's Jesus plus anything ruins everything. 
The moment you begin to try to add works to the grace of God, you empty the works of Christ on the cross. Because when Jesus goes to the cross, what does he say? It is finished. That means all the work is done. That our salvation is not based on what we do, but what Christ has done for us. Our salvation is not based on our works, but the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Our salvation is not based on our perfection, but that Jesus was perfect in our place for our sins. And through his death, burial, resurrection, we have new life with him both now and forever. You cannot add anything to the grace that God gives it. You cannot achieve it. The only thing we must do in order to be saved is to receive the grace that comes from God. Jesus plus anything, it ruins everything. And legalists would come along and say, Jesus is pretty good, but we got something better for you. Have you heard of circumcision? (laughs) This is the fights that Paul is continually up against. But we struggle with these same things today as well. Some of the areas of legalism that people wrestle with would say, hey, if you want to be saved, then you need to be baptized. Now, should we be baptized? Yes, it's the first step in following Jesus, obedience through baptism. But is it what baptism that saves us? No. So we say, if you really want to be a Christian, you need to be part of our denomination, because only our denomination is the real denomination. And then those of you who disagree with it, y'all went and started a new denomination called non-denomination. <laughs> you say, well, my way is the only right way. If you really want to be saved, you have to go on a mission trip. You have to speak in tongues. You have to be baptized in Jesus' name only. You have to read our translation of the Bible. You have to dress our way. If you really want to be saved, then you would be like us. And legalism creates rules that go beyond the Bible with their beliefs And then they begin to impose those beliefs on other people, adding works to the grace that God has given them. Jesus plus anything, it actually ruins everything. So what are some examples of modern day legalism? Okay, I'll I'll just give you a few off the top of my head. How about this one? How How about dancing? Say no dancing. Where's that at? In the Bible. They're like, well, you know, the, the, the horizontal cha-cha comes from vertical mambos. <sighs> you know what I'm talking about, right? When things get vertical, they go horizontal. You need to be very careful. You know what? Dancing leads to something else, right? And spooning leads to forking, you know, whatever. So <laughs> you need to be careful. That's what they say, right? Now, where's that at in the Bible? Where's that in the Bible? I could find more verses that support dancing than that prohibit dancing. Some people say, oh, alcohol. No, you cannot drink alcohol. Say, well, what about Jesus? That was grape juice. Well, that was the best grape juice anybody ever had because they kept the party going on for some days. Listen, I have never had grape juice like that. You say, but but the Bible says wine makes one a brawler. It sure does. But it also says that it's good for your stomach and it makes the heart glad. So is drunkenness a sin? Oh, yes, absolutely. Don't get drunk. But drinking in itself is is not a sin. How about some other ones? What about modesty? Okay. Does the Bible tell us that we are to be modest? Yes, we should be modest in our appearance because we're representing Christ in the church and we're to be good witnesses and we do not want to cause anyone to stumble. But there is no Bible verse that says how long your hemline should be. And when we try to begin to create one, 
Well, then all of a sudden, that's where you get where women must wear pants or dresses and men must wear pants and they can't cut their hair, they can't wear jewelry because someone else is defining what modesty is supposed to be for another person and who gets to describe or define modesty? It is no longer the Holy Spirit inside a person that's pointing them towards righteousness and the conscience that is convicting them. Now it becomes a committee board. Are you tracking with me on this? This is, how, this is how guys end up having to wear T-shirts when they go swimming and ladies walking around in potato sacks. <laughs> because somewhere, someone came up a rule about what modesty is supposed to be. Anybody feeling a little offended yet? Okay, let me give one more. How about this one? How about Bible translations? Pastor, what, what translation do you use? Oh, you're not using the King James, are you? What translation do you use? You're using the demon Bible. King James is the only translation that there is, right? Listen, I, I didn't know that demons wrote Bibles, and I didn't know that Jesus spoke in Shakespearean English, okay? So we believe that the original autographs of the scripture are infallible, inspired, and written in the very word of God, and the Bible is translated originally into three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. None of those say these and thines and nows, okay? And so the 1611 King James Version is great, but so are modern translations that help people be able to understand and read and begin to apply it to their lives as well. You say, Pastor, what's your opinion on Bible translations? I'll, I'll give it to you, right? I, I, I believe that whatever Bible you'll read is the best Bible for you. Okay, it's like, it's like ice cream. There's some ice cream that I love and there's others that I can't stand. <laughs> but if you'll read it, go ahead, good for you, right? Because I don't want to make a, a rule about what translation of the Bible we're, we're supposed to read, whatever it may be. I mean, we see people do this all the time. And here's the problem with it, is that they're wanting to add rules and regulations that diminish the grace of God that was finished on the cross for a person. And instead of helping people meet Jesus, they're making it harder for people to be able to follow Christ. And so they eventually become the very people and they're doing the very things that they're trying to prevent other people from actually doing themselves. So how many of you want to grow in Christ and look like legalistic Larry? How many of you want to look out for people like legalistic Larry? You want to know, what do I look for whenever I'm looking out for legalists? So let me give you eight things that are going to help you identify a legalist. The first thing is this, is they put rules before relationships. We actually had someone one time leave our church because they said, y'all just let anybody go to that church. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, maybe we should rethink that because you're here. Um, <laughs> we'll let anybody come, but we'll also let anybody leave, all right? We'll, we'll, let, we'll let you go. Every good body has a waste elimination system, if you know what I mean, right? And this is your exit, right? They put rules before relationships. Listen, we don't clean up to come to Jesus. We come to Jesus just as we are. He meets us right where we're at, and it's Jesus who changes us. And so we have a big sign when you walk in the lobby. What does it say? Come as you are, because we want anyone and everyone, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've gone through, no matter what background you've been in, we want everyone to come and experience the loving relationship that comes only from Christ Jesus. And so we do not put rules before relationships. We say, well, you can't wear that at this church. Some people be so legalistic that if Jesus walked in their church, they'd send them back home. They're like, Jesus, your beard is too long and your hair is too long. And you know, you're just not, you just don't look like us, <laughs> right? Because they're putting rules 
before the relationship. The second thing is they would rather win arguments than souls. The worst thing that ever happened is when legalists got on Facebook. Because now they're in every comment section telling everybody exactly what they think. And they would rather win arguments than actually win souls. Listen, God did not call us to make a point. You can be right and you can be wrong at the same time. We have not been called to make a point. We've been called to make a difference in this world. And he did not call us to win arguments, but to make disciples and win souls. That's why God has called us as a church. The third thing is this, is they allow their preferences to become their prejudice. Now, to be fair, there's some things that I just prefer. There's certain ways in which the church operates that, hey, they feel more safe and, and comfortable for me. There's some things that I just prefer, but I'm not going to allow my preference to then become imposed on other people, nor to judge them because they don't do things the way that I like to do things. So let me give you just a few examples of, of preference. Worship music. Some people, they'll come to church, they're like, you're not playing my favorite songs. I don't like that church because they don't play the right music. Okay, well, that's your preference, and you're allowed to have your preference, but you're not allowed to judge other people because they don't prefer the same things that you prefer. Okay, this is what legalists do. They have their preferences, so we prefer no music. We prefer no instruments. We prefer, you know, to, to stand up and sit down. We prefer to take communion in a certain way, and these are our preferences. Okay, that's great. I'm glad but you're not allowed to take your preferences and then to cast judgment on other people because they don't do things the way that you prefer. Don't allow your preferences to become a prejudice in which you judge another person. The, the other way is this, is that there's someone who confuses uniformity for unity. What is the goal? Goal is not uniformity, to where everybody looks the same, acts the same, dresses the same, votes the same, sends their kids to the same school, and uses the same homeschool curriculum for all of these things, and dresses. No, that's not the goal, because that's uniformity. God is not pleased with uniformity. You know what God is pleased with? When our diversity becomes unity. As I remember reading the Bible, at the end of all days, what I see is a portrait of heaven, where every tongue and every tribe will be gathered around Jesus, worshiping him, and every race and every ethnicity and income bracket from every time period across the world. What is that? That is not uniformity where everybody looks the same. That is unity where everybody is looking at the same Jesus. Legalists want everyone to look like them, and by doing so, they prevent people from looking like Jesus. Number five, they mistake principles for methods. In the Bible, there are principles. Principles would be like, preach the word. A method is, how do we preach the word? Well, Paul doesn't tell us how to preach the word. He just says, pastor, preach the word. A method would be textual, topical, expository preaching. Another one, Jesus say, hey, take communion. Well, how do we do that? Do we come down front and rip and dip? Do we use the little prepackaged Ikea communion cups? Do we... Do we take it every week? Do we take it once a month? Do we take it every year? You know what? The Bible doesn't tell us how. It gives us that freedom. The principle is, hey, preach the word, take communion. The method is up to each individual church and how they decide to do it. Legalists would say, if you're not preaching through books of the Bible, expository preaching, then you're not a real preacher. Now, I preach expository. This is the 11th book that we've walked through as a church. My prayer and goal is we do all 66 by the time that I die. I just believe that I just, I just that's my preference, but I'm not going to let my preference become a prejudice, and I'm not going to allow the principle of preaching the word to become a 
legalistic demand upon others as well. Don't want to do that. It's very tricky, very dangerous. Number six is someone who replaces the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, you don't need the Holy Spirit if you're going to be a legalist. You know why? Because there's somebody else who's going to point out that sin for you. You don't need to be convicted because I'm going to condemn you. You don't need to be led into righteousness because I'm going to show you the way. And legalistic churches quench the Holy Spirit from working in somebody else's life because sister so-and-so and legalistic Larry is going to point out all your sins for you. And even some really toxic abuses churches, you're not even allowed to make decisions for yourself. You must submit them to the elders in order for you to get approval before you do whatever it is that you're going to do. Why? Because they don't believe that you really need the Holy Spirit because their rules are enough for you. See how dangerous this can be? They exchange works for grace. And then lastly, it's someone who turns God's protection into a prison. How did legalistic Larry get this way? He turned the protection that God originally meant for good into a prison that harms and hurts other people. In the Old Testament, there are laws. So I'm not, I'm not saying we don't have any laws. Let's just go ahead. Woo, do whatever we want. That's not what I'm saying. In the Old and New Testament, there are laws and there are commands, but those are in there for our protection. So examples of those would be love your enemy, love your neighbor, give generously, attend church on a regular basis, pray without ceasing, flee from sexual immorality, all these things. These are principles and and, and commands that the Bible tells us to do. But at the same time, why does God give them to us? Because he loves us and he wants to protect us from ruining our lives. But legalism would take what God gives us for protection and use it as a prison. So let me give you an example. In the Bible, commentators, they would refer to the laws of God as a fence. And this fence was for our protection. Now at home, how many of you have a fence? You have a fence? Okay, is that fence a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing because my daughters, they're at five and two and they love to run and play in the backyard. And if I were to remove that fence, you know what's on the other side of that fence? I-10. And if I say, hey, we don't need a fence anymore, it's going to lead to the death of my children. But if I get so paranoid and afraid, what do I do? I'm going to put another fence there. That fence isn't good enough, so I'm going to add a fence here, and 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 then a fence, and then a fence. And then what happens? My daughters can no longer enjoy the backyard. My daughters can no longer play. My daughters will no longer have a happy childhood because I have taken what originally was meant for good and I've turned my home into a prison. And many people grow up in churches that they're not experiencing freedom. They're being put under the bondage of slavery again. And they're not experiencing the protection of God because their churches and their religious system has turned them into a prison. How how did this happen? Actually, verse 23 tells us how. It says this. It says, these have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity of the body, but they are no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Somewhere, legalistic Larry encountered something that made him fearful or afraid. Maybe he grew up in a home where he had an alcoholic father. And because he suffered abuse, he just decided all alcohol is a sin and anybody who drinks alcohol is no different than my dad. Or maybe he has a struggle with pornography. And so because of his temptations and his lustfulness, all of a sudden, now anybody who has the internet is looking at porn. 
Because I do it, everybody else must do it, and so now we have to create laws to prevent people from doing these things. And it starts with a good motive, but it ends up in a bad place because they take the protection that God gave us and they turn it into a, a prison for others and they try to control other people's lives because it gives them a sense of control for themselves. Listen, if you're taking notes, write this down, very important, is that we don't need behavioral modification. What we need is life transformation. We don't need to modify the outside, we need Jesus to transform and change us on the inside. Because it's not the outside that's the problem. The problem is what happens on the inside. Here's what I have discovered, is that sin never starts with a person's hands. Nobody ever just trips and falls into sin. You know how people sin? It starts with their hearts. Sin starts in the heart before it ever moves out to a person's hands. And so you can create all these rules and regulations and laws, but you know what's going to happen? If it's still in a person's heart, they're still going to find a way to commit it. Because like Jesus says, it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but it's what comes out of them because sin starts in the heart before it ever reaches the hands. We don't need behavioral modification. What we need to experience is new life through Jesus. We need life transformation if we want to change. Legalistic Larry, he misses this. He wants to focus on the outside when what God really wants to do is transform you from the inside. So be mindful and watch out for these men like legalistic Larry. The, sec uh, the second thing is this. The second person we meet is hyper-charismatic Karen. Okay, how many of you grew up in a charismatic church? Raise your hand, raise your hand. Where are my charismatic people at? Raise both hands. I know you want to. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Raising both hands. Now, I'm just glad you left your flags and banner and shofar at home. If you have no clue what I'm talking about, you were not raised charismatic. <laughs> All right, listen. I love, I love the gifts of the Spirit. I am a Pentecostal, charismatic, AG pastor. I love it, right? I am so Pentecostal that whenever me and Ashley, we pray, we pray in tongues. I'm so Pentecostal that when we kiss, we kiss in tongues. No, I'm just kidding. Am I going to get in trouble later? <laughs> All the legalists just got real mad I said that. <laughs> now listen, the same way that I am not against the laws and principles of the scripture is the same way that I'm not against the gifts of the spirit. She says here, it says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in details about visions. Here's hyper-charismatic Karen. Do you speak in tongues? No. Wow. You've really grown a lot for not having the Holy Spirit, but you know. Do you have prophetic visions? Oh, you don't? Huh, interesting. God talks to me directly. Do, do, you have, do you have a word of knowledge? Uh, no, I don't even know what that means. Oh, well, you haven't taken as many classes as I have. And what does she do? She passes judgment on other people and she disqualifies them from being active and functioning within the church because of her arrogance, because of her ego, 
and because of her pride. Do you know who hypercharismatic? You ever met this person? You ever met this person? Like when the wind blows, they're like, ooh, it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> or they get, they get they're, they're, during worship, they're like, oh, I got goosebumps. I got goosebumps. And they're like, uh, no, Trevor just turned the AC on. <laughs> or, or it could be like the everything spiritual warfare woman. You know that one? Like, oh, the coffee's hot. Oh, it must be a demon. <laughs> or they get a flat tire and they're like, not today, Satan. Or maybe you don't know how to drive and you hit a curb, okay? Like hyper-charismatic Karen, you, you met her? And she loves to pass judgment and disqualify others. But as a new believer, here's what you gotta watch out for because you'll meet these people and you'll look up to them and you say, wow, look how holy they are. Look how God's using them. They're praying for people. They're speaking in tongues. I think I saw her levitate one time. And you'll look up to these people and you're like, oh, wow, I want to be gifted like them. I want to be used of God like them. And so then you begin to gravitate to them. And here's what you need to know is that the spiritual gifts are given, but spiritual fruits are grown. Don't just be looking to somebody because they have a spiritual gift. No, because every single person who becomes a Christian receives a spiritual gift the moment they meet Jesus. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 12 tells us to each one of us, you and me and all of us, we have received a manifestation of the Spirit, and it's God who distributes the gifts as he sees fit. It's not something that somebody earns. It's something that somebody gives. And so they can't brag about receiving a gift. The spiritual gifts, they're given. But you know what you look for? You need to look for spiritual fruit. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you're looking for somebody to grow or to disciple or to mentor you, don't follow the gifts. Follow the fruits. Jesus even tells us this. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And at Redemption Church, we love the gifts. We love using the gifts. Come to first Wednesday prayer night. We're gonna let our Pentecostal freak flag fly. It's gonna be amazing. We're gonna have altar time, praying for people. Tongues and prophecy will take place. We love these things. But at Redemption Church, we do not chase after signs and wonders. Here's what we do, we follow Jesus and we believe signs and wonders will follow after us. Hyper charismatic Karen don't get that. That's why she goes to 17 different churches. Seeking a Holy Ghost fix. And reckon, instead of recognizing that maturity doesn't come from giftedness, but maturity actually comes from the fruit of the Spirit. Who are you going to look up to? Legalistic Larry? Are you going to look up to hyper-charismatic Karen? Or how about this one? Deconstructing Dan. Now, if legalistic Larry and hyper-charismatic Karen had a son, his name would be Deconstructing Dan. Because many of you, that's the church you grew up to. Legalistic, hyper-charismatic, you saw the abuses, and you said, I want nothing to do with it at all. So what does he say about people in that situation? Here's what he says. They are puffed up without reason by, by their sensuous minds and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body is nourished and knit together through the joints and the ligaments that grows with the growth that is from God. Here at Redemption, we don't deal too much with the legalists because they realize very quickly this is not the church for them. We don't deal too much with the hyper-charismatics because, well, we just teach biblical sound doctrine and they kind of 
kind of fall in the line on that. But where the majority of people, I would say, come to redemption, tend to follow the deconstruction path. That you were raised in church, and then somewhere along the way, you experienced a little church hurt, you got offended by somebody else, you started questioning everything that you believe, and then eventually you walked away from the faith altogether. And then you come back to redemption thinking, I'm going to give God one more shot, and then you find our church. The majority of people who make up our, our church home come from this background, this idea of this deconstruction. And it's catching a lot of movement today in our society. People questioning their faith and making posts and hashtags about ex-evangelicals and deconstruction and many young believers are following their Twitter accounts and following them on Instagram and reposting it and it's causing this movement and people are wondering, is this a, is this a good thing? Is this a place for me, right? And what I would just kind of push back and challenge is that you're never going to grow in Christ apart from a church. That's what he says right here. He says, you need to hold fast to the head, which is Jesus, and then be connected with all the ligaments to the body, and that results in a growth that is a growth that comes from God. You will never grow in Christ apart from a church because Jesus is the head and the church is the body. And like an arm separated from the body will wither away and die, the moment you begin to separate yourself from the body and from Christ is the moment that your soul begins to wither away and die. You will never grow in Christ apart from a church. Listen, all of the fads and all the trends about bashing and hating and criticizing the church, this is nothing new. Paul dealt with it in his day. And then 500 years ago, we went through a deconstruction period as well. It started with a man named Martin Luther. Martin Luther, he was a former Catholic monk who wrote the 95 Theses and nailed it to the church door. It's kind of like his version of Twitter. And here's all my criticisms of the church. And he posted them on the door. And it launched today what is known as the Reformation. It's the reason why we're not Catholic. It's the reason why Redemption Church is, is here today. He saw the abuse. He saw the hypocrisy. He saw all the problems in the church. And instead of getting bitter, he decided to stay and make it better. Instead of getting frustrated and deconstructing, he gathered some men and women around him. And he said, we're not going to deconstruct. We're going to reform. We're going to make it better. And here's what they did. They experienced a growth that comes from God. Here's how I know the modern day deconstruction movement is not from God. You know why? Because it is not helping people connect to the head, which is Jesus Christ, and it is not helping people connect to the body, which is the church. It is not leading to a growth that comes from God. It is leading them to, to give into sensuality, to question orthodox teachings, to disassociate from other believers, and eventually to deny and depart from the faith as well. You really tell me that that's God's best for a person? No, here's what the reformers did. They threw themselves into the beauty of scripture. They rested upon the grace that is from God. They gathered together, they worshiped, they prayed, they formed communities. They wrote books talking about the holiness and the, the beauty that is from the Lord. This is what they did. They didn't disconnect from the body. They brought the body closer together. And they experienced a growth that is a growth that comes from God. When you're hanging around deconstructing dance, do you feel better about Jesus? Do you feel more confident in your faith? No. Why? Because they have to make people look bad in order to make themselves feel better. They're not building you up. They're tearing you down. 
And the Reformation seeks to build up the kingdom of God. Deconstruction seeks to tear down the works that Christ has done. Be very careful who you listen and who you learn from. Lastly, number four, my personal favorite, Joyless Jill. You ever met Joyless Jill? Joyless Jill's like, hey, sister, how are you doing? They're like, today is a terrible day. Really? I mean, it's sunshiny. Yeah, but it's going to rain. When? Sometime it happens. You're like, how, how was your day? Oh, it's just worse, and yesterday was even worse, and tomorrow's going to be worse still. My dog died, and I got a rash. <laughs> you ever met Joyless Jill? Like, you just can't do anything right. She's going to make her happy. She's like, no, I will not be happy. That's Joyless Jill, here's what he says as we close with Joyless Jill. He says, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why are you still alive in this world? Do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and false teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity of the body, but which there is no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Here Paul uses a very big word. It's asceticism. Some of you may be wondering, what does that mean? Here's a dictionary definition of asceticism, and it is severe discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. Here's what Joyless Jill does. Joyless Jill looks around and he, she says, the moment you start having fun is the moment you make God mad. You cannot have fun because we're supposed to be serious. And she takes herself very seriously, but my fear is that she doesn't take God serious enough because she thinks that the more she hates herself, the more God loves her. You ever met a person like this? where everything they see is a temptation for them to sin. And so they deny themselves of any luxury or pleasure, and then they want to deny you of it too. So you bought a new car, everybody's like, man, that's a great car. And she's like, I wonder how many orphans could have been fed with that monthly check you got. Say, I just bought a new house. How many bedrooms? Four? Four bedrooms? You only got three kids. Two of them should be in a monk bed. You could send that money to missions somewhere else. Why? Because she is denying herself pleasure because she thinks that by self-denial of anything that is good, she will earn the favor that comes from God. Today, we would call this like a poverty theology. Like the less I have, the more of Jesus I get. And so I'm gonna try to starve myself and I'm gonna try to live in as much poverty. I'm gonna try to you know, be as ascetic as I can because by doing so, I'm gonna earn my righteousness back from God. And for people like Joyless Jill, they deny themselves any sort of fun because they think the more miserable my life is, the more holy I become. But can I just tell you that that's just not true? Listen, if your view of God leads you to be a miserable person, then I just have to wonder what kind of God are you worshiping? Because my view of God is that blessed is the man. Blessed is those who seek righteousness. You know what the word blessed means? It means happy. Happy is the person who seeks righteousness. Happy are the peace. Happy. That's God's intention. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, whenever he made it, you know what that word Eden means? It means delight. It means joy. And it means happiness. God's design for us is that in him, we would find happiness. And if your worship of God makes you miserable, you got to question whether or not you're worshiping. 
Because when I read the Bible, I see this. The joy of the Lord is my strength, and I will rejoice, and I'm going to be glad in it. That's not what Joelis Jill thinks. Joelis Jill has a different definition. She says, joy, no, we don't need joy. We need yoge. What's yoge? Yourself, others, and Jesus. Yoge is joy spelt backwards, and it sounds like a disease because it is. Nobody ever wanted yoge. How many of y'all want some joy, though, in your life? <laughs> Joyless Jill doesn't get it, but here's what I've discovered, is that when you pursue holiness, God gives you happiness for free. How many of you ever heard the saying that says, God doesn't care about your happiness? You ever heard that? Sounds really good, but it's just not true. How many parents would say that to your kids? I don't care about your happiness. You're like, ugh, I don't think that's really good parenting there. Right, but here's what we do. We care about our kids, and so we direct them into a way that promotes flourishing for their life. Here's what I've discovered is that when you pursue holiness, God gives happiness for free. I've been following Jesus now for 15 years. You know what? My life is better today than it's ever been in my life. And I didn't get here just by pursuing after happiness. I got here by pursuing after holiness. And the more I pursued after the holiness, the more of God's grace and goodness and happiness I experienced in my life. Now, people who pursue only after happiness rarely end up with holiness. But people who pursue the heart of God through holiness tend to be some of the happiest people that I've ever met in my life because they found joy, they found hope, they found grace, they found mercy, they found forgiveness, they found purpose, and they found meaning that's going to make them through their day. Joyless Jill. We want to be happy Hanks. That's who we want to be. We want to be blessed Bills. Less joyless Jills. Amen. And so you're, right now you're listening to this and you're wondering, well, if these are the people that I am to avoid, then who am I supposed to be with? Because the people you do life with are the people that you become like. So who do you want to be like? How many of you want to be like legalistic Larry? Say, how, many, how many want to be like, like joyless Jill? You want to be like deconstructing Dan? Anybody want to be like hypercharismatic Karen? You're like, no, I don't want to be like that. So who do you want to be like? I want to introduce you to the fifth person that Paul says that we should be like. And it's Sally or Sammy the saint. What does that word saint mean? It's the number one word that is used in the Bible to describe Christians. It doesn't describe us by our sin, like a legalistic person would do. It doesn't even describe us by our achievements, like a hyper-charismatic person would do. It doesn't describe us by our flaws, like a deconstructing person would do. No, how does it describe us? It describes us by the identity that God speaks over us in our lives, saints. Not sinner, saint. In Christ, you receive a new identity. In Christ, you receive a new nature. In Christ, you receive a new destiny, eternity. In Christ, you receive a new community. In Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. Your sins are as cast as far as the east is to the west. Your past sins, he died for. Your present sins, they are covered. And your future sins, the ones you have not yet committed, he paid for those too. He says you are a holy person. 
He says, you are made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. He says that you are a brother or you are a sister in Christ. He says you are a son or a daughter. He says you are set apart. You are special. You are made for a purpose and on a purpose. This is what it means for us to be a saint. And some of you are hearing this right now and maybe you're raised in a legalistic church where you've been told all your life you're a filthy sinner and everybody pointed out all the wrong things that you've done. And you hear this and you're like, Saints, that's a new one for me. I want you to know that this is the way that God sees you. In Christ, you are a saint. And when you begin to see yourself the way that God sees you, it will begin to change your life. You say, but pastor, I'm not perfect. I know. You're one of those people. But you know what? The Christian life is not about perfection. The Christian life is about progress. This is what is known as the doctrine of progressive sanctification. In heaven, Christ will make you perfect. You will get a glorified body. The moment you met Jesus, you were declared righteous, sins forgiven. And the space between the moment you meet Jesus and the moment you see Jesus is what we call sanctification. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. You want to avoid people who prevent you from becoming who God created you to be. But you want to do life with people who are on the same journey that you're on. The Christian life is not about perfection. You will never be perfect. The Christian life is about making progress every single day. It's about waking up in the morning and saying, today I'm a saint. And tomorrow I'll be a saint too. And if I'm married, I'm gonna help my husband become a saint today. Or I'm gonna help my wife become a saint today. I'm gonna raise my kids to be everyday saints. I'm gonna be in a small group, not with legalistic Larry, but Saint Sally, because they're gonna help me become a saint too. Every single day, making a decision, today is the day that I'm gonna choose Christ and I'm gonna do it more and more and I'm gonna become more and more like him every single day of my life. That's the type of person that God wants us to be. Who do you want to be? My last question is this. What kind of church do you want to be a part of? We're a young church. We're still trying to figure out our identity as a church. Do you want to be a part of a a legalistic, rule-making, rule-keeping church? Do you want to be a part of a hyper-charismatic church? Do you want to be a part of a deconstructing where everything's bitter church? Do you want to be part of a joyless church? No, how many of you want to be a part of a church that's filled with everyday saints? Do you know why? Because you become like the people that you do life with. 